You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, Mr. Bond heads to Japan and comes face-to-face with Blofeld in 1967's You Only Live Twice. And welcome to episode nine of the Bonzilla Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Will. And welcome. And yes. we're, we're ready to get back into the Bond stuff. But if I if I um am uh if I am reading your anticipation uh for this episode, it is quite a packed episode or yes. a lot lot of stuff to get through. So I suggest we just hop on right into it as Let's, we talk about our next James Bond yeah, movie. Yeah, so we're talking about the fifth James Bond motion picture. You only live twice. Yeah. So what? What was this? Nineteen nineteen sixty seven. Yes. So yeah. previously, uh, the Bond movies have been coming out at a one the year pace. You right. know. And last time we talked about, th- oh yeah, yeah. Thunderball. Thunderball. Thunder- oh, oh wow. Yeah. Oh, cinematic gold Thunderball. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so <laughs> oh, you man. know, nineteen you know, nineteen sixty one, nineteen sixty three, nineteen sixty four. Mm-hmm. Ni- Thunderball came out in 1965. There's a, there's the original, a year missing. There's a year missing in yeah. between. <laughs> so the original intention, uh, as I kind of talked about a little bit, was to do Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which, if you remember, originally was supposed to be after Goldfinger, but then they had the opportunity to do Thunderball and didn't want to pass up giving the Kevin McClory the chance to do his own movie, so they took it. Then they were going to do it again. But the thing about Honor Majesty's Secret Service that we'll see in the next episode is that it uh, mostly takes place in very s- snowy areas. And uh, the problem with filming... Like Hoth. Yes, kind yeah. of Hoth, Hoth-ish areas. <laughs> Hoth-ish. And um, <laughs> the problem with shooting uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service in 1965, 1966, was that Europe had a very poor winter, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of snowfall in the places that they were looking to shoot. So they had to kind of alter course... Uh, because, again, the snow and the mountain-covered peaks uh, play a very important role in uh, in that movie. So they decided to delay it and go to uh, directly to You Only Live Twice. Uh, so Terrence Young has officially retired from the Bond franchise at this point. So Ter- Terrence Young being? Uh, the, the director of Dr. No... Um, you know, uh, from Rush With Love and Thunderball. Right, okay. Uh, so the, kind of the original director. And Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger, was not available to, to take the helm once again. So they needed to find a new director. So there's nobody. We, can, uh, we can't make any more Bond movies. Like all these guys nope. won't do it. So guess guess we'll have to pack it in, folks. No, Eon indeed. Productions is closing for business. No more Bond movies. Well, they did find somebody. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Uh, they found another British director, Lewis Gilbert, okay, uh, who had directed some war films earlier in the 50s, but was known or at that time uh, for being the director of the Academy Award-nominated comedy, Alfie, which mm-hmm. starred uh, Michael Caine okay. as, as a womanizer. Right. Okay. So, um, And Bond is somewhat... Uh, wait a minute. Okay. I always like doing these, pre-produ- these pre-production things because, as you mentioned, a lot of things within the movie make more sense and there's gonna be a lot more of that in this movie so just can, hang tight i don't know like what's coming up next i think because you talked about the director 
Yeah. Like, are we going to talk about the writer yes. of this? Because this we'll, one threw yeah, me for we'll, a loop. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the writer in a little bit. Okay, I want to get right, some right. more. Okay. Uh, so Gu- Gilbert originally turned down uh, the opportunity to direct a Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cubby Broccoli called him back after that. It's like, he told, quote, you can't turn this down. You can't turn down the largest cinema audience in the world. Mm-hmm. And Gilbert's like, all right, yeah. I'll do it. Uh, compelling case and with with uh, uh, Gilbert comes Academy Award winning cinematographer Freddie Young who had done the cinematography on such films such as The Lawrence of Arabia and uh, Dr. Zhivago so a lot of big name movies so they've they've got a good visual team ready to go but they need a writer Will oh they need they need a writer you do you do need a writer for for a film uh, for, for a movie, a screenplay perhaps would help out. So originally they get a, get a man least. named Harold Jack Bloom, who's kind of known for TV, his TV western work in Bonanza and stuff, and he he contributes some story ideas, but they don't really like his script. So instead, they turn to a close friend of Ian Fleming's, uh, a man you might know as the writer of such books as Charlie and the Chocolate <laughs> Factory, James and the Giant Peach, and the BFG. That is right, right. The screenwriter of You Only Live Twice is rolled dull so like this came up on the screen and i was like oh that's that's interesting as there's another guy named Roald dahl who did uh who wrote this movie that i looked it up i'm like wait it's this it's yeah. the same guy so i mean so i'm expecting to see chocolate factories or you know giant insects or i'm sure what else did he write i'm sure he wrote more things about orphans we well, wrote the, the riches the, the, the witches the witches the witches What's what's the? You've never seen the witches? No. No, you should do that as a. No. Is there an orphan it. in that one? I feel like a lot of his stories. Yeah, I mean, have there's orphans. like a grandmother, and it's about a bunch of witches who turn kids into rats because they hate kids and stuff like that. Okay. So. All right. The movie, I the movie's very uh, memorable if yeah. you know it. Um, but yeah, so Rodol didn't quite uh, translate he, to this. By this time, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> by this time he had already written and published uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the the uh, um, James and the Giant Peach. Right. Uh, he had been trying to transition into screenwriting. He had written a script uh, called "The Bells of Hell Go Ting a Ling a Ling" uh-huh. uh, that didn't get produced. Sounds like a Rodol uh, title. But they decided to, uh, yeah. So Rodol was a close friend of Ian Fleming, and just uh, they just happened to hire him as the writer. Um, well, first of all, Dahl had made it clear that he was friends with Fleming, but "You Only Live Twice" was Fleming's worst book, mm-hmm. and so he went to the writers and said, "You know, I." Can, can I just need more chocolate? Do what I need <laughs> with it. Uh, the the only Dahl said that the only requirements from the producers uh-huh. uh, was that he include a, a volcano, which we'll get to why they wanted that. Okay, uh, and that they had to adhere to the Bond formula of women. Okay, uh, which is you have, according to Dahl, uh, three women, uh, ally and a henchwoman who both die. <laughs> And then a girl to have Bond survive with at the end of the movie. Of course, because Bond needs his prize. Yes. At the so end of the day. So uh, Dahl, as uh, in interviews he did later, was very happy with the um, the work that he did, and he felt that uh, Gilbert and himself really worked well together in terms of. Dahl said that one of the things he never really liked about the film industry is that a lot of these directors have 
have big egos. <laughs> eagles? <laughs> egos. <laughs> they have big egos, and, and they want to take the script and, and, and put all their own little I stuff in it. I went into Stanley Kubrick's and, office the other day, and all of a sudden, just like, ah! A giant, giant gold gold eagle just popped and out And he of said the that what he, what he liked about Gilbert and uh, the Pond team was that they just kind of worked with him and, and worked together on the script. Uh-huh. And, and Dahl would also go on to say that of all the works that he were adapted or that he wrote, this was his favorite adaptation and finished product. Okay. Which goes both to show just kind of what he thought about his, this movie uh-huh. and how much he disliked all the other adaptations of his work that came through his life. Right. Uh, so, anyways, so let's get back to kind of the rest of the team. What What is the rest of the team doing? All right. Um, rest of the team. Harley Quinn. Deadshot. <laughs> Might as well. together then. a suicide squad. <laughs> so, to do research on the movie, um, a lot of the big names in the Bond production team uh, traveled to Japan. So, this includes uh, Broccoli, Saltzman, producers, uh, Gilbert and Young, and uh, Ken Adam, you know, the right. big production designer. Uh, while they're in Japan, they also run into well, our... Editor friend uh, Peter Hunt, who had been taking a vacation after being denied the chance to direct this movie, uh, when they ran into him in Happenstance in Japan, they asked him to be the come back for assistance. There's a place directing. called Happenstance Japan. Happenstance Japan. <laughs> well, I guess uh, it should be we, we should mention now that uh, you only live twice yes. takes place. It in does Japan. take yes. So it takes place in Japan. Yes. Yes. Pri- primarily. Primarily. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that I should have mentioned that earlier. Thank yeah, you. You should have. Uh, so I'm they run. They run. They run the hunt. Who is a little miffed that he didn't get the directing position because he felt like he had done a lot of work isn't directing on Goldfinger and Thunderball and felt that he should have been promoted mm-hmm. uh, and was upset that they went to outside sources uh, to find a director. But they convinced him, uh, if fate would have it, to come back and do another assistant directing gig for them. Uh, so. A big part of Ian Fleming's book is that uh, Blofeld Inspector's hideout in this movie is a castle on the sea. Uh, so they decide to hire a pilot to take him up in a helicopter and just do a big kind of aerial tour of Japan and kind of see different places that they could film. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they get in the air, the pilot starts uh, talking to them and reveals that he was an ex-kamikaze pilot during World War II. Uh, but he turns out to be a fantastic pilot and does not crash into anything right uh which is more to say about what happens to the rest of the movie but again <laughs> get to that do you uh, get into a plane with a kamikaze pilot um i don't know i, I he lived or so. more so if you're a kamikaze yeah. if you're a kamikaze pilot do you fuck with the people like in the thing it's i like, feel like that's why he waited until they were in the air <laughs> to say it because again all, all oh yeah you don't tell people that yeah. oh i was I'm a kamikaze pilot uh, but he lived plane. he survived yeah. so right. obviously you know uh, so they f- they figure out very quickly that there are no such things as castles by the sea right. in in Japan because Fleming made it up for the book. He he had a little creativity right because of, and this was pre-internet that yeah, you can just look, look this it up, up because uh, there were typhoons. Uh, you know, it would make sense to build like. And Ian on Fleming is passed away at this point, right? Yes, yes. So they couldn't ask him. Uh, so, but while they're flying over Japan, they see these giant volcanic craters. Uh, near some very still active volcanoes. And Broccoli just gets this vision of the hideout being in a giant volcano. Turns to Ken Adams said, Ken, can you do it? And Adams like, sure, I can do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, they have done their tour. They, they do basically three days in an aerial, like an aerial tour of th- like three-fourths of Japan. And they are prepared to, to head on home. 
have a flight booked to head on out. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the last minute, though, okay. they are informed that they have a um, opportunity to view a ninja demonstration. <laughs> so they decided to cancel the flight and go to the ninja demonstration. The making of this movie is very much like the pacing and structure of yeah. the actual movie itself. Because now everybody listening, including myself, is like, wait a minute, what, ninjas? Yes. Um, <laughs> so they go to this ninja demonstration. Uh, the flight that we're supposed to get on, 25 minutes into the flight, crashes into Mount Fiji, <laughs> killing everybody aboard. What? So um, I was telling this to one of our friends or one of our, our loyal listeners, Maggie, and she responded, I want to give her full credit for this, that the Bond production team was saved by ninjas. What do you mean they were saved? I yeah. thought you said they all died. No, 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 no. The they they canceled their flight. Oh, to or they canceled their flight to go see oh, the ninjas. They all died. No, 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 no. They're all they're all. But a lot of people still died. A lot of people still died. They they could have been on the flight. And to be clear, this was the full production team. This was Cubby Broccoli, Harry Saltzman, Ken Adam, Lewis Gilbert, Peter Hunt, everybody that's majorly been creatively involved with this film and a lot of the Bond films. If they're on that flight, this series is over. To quote uh, Inglorious Bastards, they have all the eggs in one basket, and what happened? They blew up the basket. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so they were Jesus. lucky enough to do that, and that is near death number one okay. on this movie. Uh, so they start the casting process for uh, this movie. Uh, so yes, Connery returns, Bernard Leach returns, Lois Maxwell returns, uh, but they start having to cast this new cast of characters. Tiger Tanaka, uh, Bond's major ally in this movie, is played by a man named Tetsuro Tamba. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had worked with Gilbert before in a film called The Seventh Dawn and was kind of an um, easy get for them because he was a Japanese actor who already knew how to speak English. Uh, so he was a karate expert and brought kind of uh, a, a level of realism in, in terms of his fight sequences and that sort of thing to the film, well, which they were very happy to get. They, they had to uh, cast uh, the henchwoman in this movie, Helga Brandt, also right. known as Number 11. Right. Uh, and they, they auditioned hundreds of European models and actresses trying to find the perfect woman to, to play this part and right. eventually come through. Spoiler alert, any of them would have been fine. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't uh, matter. <laughs> uh, to German actress Karen Dorr, who... Is a little bit shorter and a little bit of a different hair color than they intended, but they were just like, sure, let's let's do this. We'll right. put you in heels. We'll we'll get your hair dyed and we'll 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 do it. You're only a woman in one of these in, movies. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> on her first day of shooting, uh, there's the scene where she's getting a drink for James Bond. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so they do the first take of the scene and they say cut. And the direct- which is you know standard procedure for you know how a movie is made. Yeah. <laughs> and so. They, they, Gilbert and his cameraman kind of talk. It's like, oh, we have to adjust the light. Would you mind stepping out for a moment? Oh, no. <laughs> Where Karen, is this going? Karen Dorr steps out, and immediately after she leaves, a light fixture explodes above her and crashes right where she was standing. <laughs> so if she'd been standing there for another moment, she would have been crushed. No way. And that is near death number two. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> Let's get to the casting of our two Japanese leads. Right. Um, they were very adamant that they wanted to get authentic Japanese 
Oh, women. that's nice. That's nice of them. Yeah, it's nice that they didn't want to go with 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 yellow face yeah. for this roles. <laughs> it's like listen, like we're we're gonna we're gonna keep to the misogyny, but we want to be really authentic with yeah. the ethnicity of it. So we want to make sure that yeah. Bond is just you know in walking all over all women. <laughs> in one of the few, maybe only instance of actual crossover between our two fandoms. Okay. Uh, the Bond team got help from Toho. The two fairies? <laughs> no. Is it? Ah. Oh. No. They got help from Toho uh, to um, help cast these these uh, women. Uh-huh. They, they have an issue because there's not many Japanese actresses uh, that live in Japan that also know English. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do decide, they, they go down uh, to two choices they have for their two lead roles. Uh, Akiko Wakabayashi. I'm 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 in your realm. <laughs> yeah. Uh and uh Mia Hama. Yeah. Uh both of which ha- we have already seen on the podcast uh in King Kong versus Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Uh Akiko had originally been cast as the character um uh, the uh, Kissy Suzuki character whose name is never mentioned in the film but it's the bride that yeah. Bond hands. Well, why would she? Yeah. I mean, you know. At the end of the she's movie. She's just a woman in these movies. Which is really strange cuz also Kissy Suzuki is the only of the women characters that appears in the novel and her name is mentioned quite a bit in the novel. Right. So it's just like uh, and then Mia is supposed <laughs> to play Aki, the uh, woman who's helping Bond in, in the first half of the movie. Sure. Uh, so they're both flown. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about, <laughs> about they're both the women flown, in this movie. <laughs> uh, they're both flown to England uh-huh. to um, to help them learn how to speak English for their role. Mm-hmm. And Akiko nails it right away. She gets English right away. She's doing perfectly. But Mia's struggling a little bit. Uh, Gilbert and the production team basically you're like well this isn't working out right we're gonna have to tell her that we're gonna have to fly her back to japan <laughs> to <kill her. laughs> so she, gilbert she's already sends, read the script. <laughs> uh the, one of the other assistant producers and a translator had to uh her place of stay and let her know mm-hmm. the next day they come back to gilbert and gilbert has how it went and uh <laughs> they say oh she told us that tonight she's going to commit suicide Oh my by jumping God. off the roof of a hotel because she can't go back to Japan having failed. <laughs> so Gilbert rushes over to Broccoli and Saltzman and have a conversation during which Saltzman says, or uh, sorry, Broccoli says, you know, I, I think we can make this work. <laughs> so that's near death number three. What? So what's, what they decided to do is they decided to switch uh, the roles okay. in that uh, oh my, Akiko. Oh my god! Oh, you, you've got to be kidding me! So Akiko is now playing. Um, Did they really do that? Yes. Oh my so god! So Akiko now plays uh, the agent at the beginning because she is more comfortable with her English, whereas Mia is now playing the wife at the end because she has less lines that she needs to learn. Remind me that point when we're actually talking about the movie. That is insane. That that. I, I'll wait. I'll wait until we talk okay. about the movie. All right. So that yes, yeah, so that's <laughs> near death number three. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then the final really weird casting thing that happens is the casting of the f- the first true face of Ernst Stravo Blofeld. Okay. So Blofeld being the, I would say, what would you say? Like the main Bond antagonist or the most iconic one? Iconic one, I yeah. guess. But this is this is something I want to save for a couple episodes down the line. But we'll, we'll have a lot of discussions about the, the original Blofeld right, right. Uh, okay. throughout the series. So anyway, so but they have yeah. to cast him. So they have to actually cast him because they're going to be finally showing his face in this movie. So Saltzman's like, dude, I got this, all right? And because Saltzman was very big on... <laughs> exact quote. <laughs> he was dude, he wanted to this. really cast against type uh, for the role of Blofeld. So he decides to get uh, Czechoslovakian 
political and philosophical comedian, Jan Warrick. Okay. They show up to shoot kind of the original Blofeld scenes, and Gilbert is stunned when Jan walks on the set looking like a very kindly old father Christmas. And Cubby and and, and uh, Gilbert are like, this is kind of weird, but we'll give it a try. Three days in the shooting, they're like, no, this isn't working. <laughs> and so, and this is this is a true story, by the way. Okay. Um, Cubby and Galt Gilbert are talking, and Cubby says, all right, what are we going to do about this? And Gilbert replies, well, I don't think if we fire him, we have to worry about him committing suicide. <laughs> <laughs> so they make an agreement to uh recast blofeld and instead go with uh our our friend dr sam loomis yeah donald pleasance yes who plays the iconic as you said sam loomis from the uh halloween yes. movies uh, franchise uh, even though he was coming at the last minute uh pleasance was very adamant that he had to have some sort of physical deformity uh, okay, as part of his character so he pitched first he pitched a hump Right, and then he pitched a limp, and then right. he pitched a uh, limp hand before they finally settled with a hunch in it. In a hunch, yes. <laughs> before they finally settled on the scar over his eye, right? Which he instantly regretted because it was very, very uncomfortable for mm. him. Okay. Well, you know, you reap what you sow. All right. So Ken Adam is in London building this volcano set, and he hears a radio broadcast while he's shaving in the morning about this man who has invented a gyrocopter named game Ken Wallace. Mm-hmm. So Adam gets in contact with the BBC. Or as I like to call the Bond copter. I call it the Bond Yeah, the Bond copter. copter. Yeah. So he gets in contact with Wallace, and they decide to insert the gyrocopter into the script, um, which causes <laughs> a very big scene, as you can see, remember in the script. Uh, or in the movie, there's a big helicopter sequence. Right. There's uh, a big set piece involving the Bond copter and a bunch of other helicopters. Right. And it's supposed to be taking place near these big mountains and volcanoes. Right. So that is where they decide to shoot it. And Wallace noted that uh, he, there were other times where they had the camera copter, which was being held by uh, or, or manned by legendary aerial cameraman Johnny Jordan, uh, who probably for a while was the most famous name in the game in terms of just film it's like if you wanted really great aerial shots you got johnny jordan uh but he was in the camera helicopter and wallace noted that the altitude in the area was kind of a little unstable Mm -hmm. uh and before he could really note this to the producers they were getting an aerial shot of one of the helicopters but an updraft and I should mention that the way that they do the helicopter shots, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but basically a lot of times what they'll do is that the man in the helicopter or the cameraman will be kind of hanging a little bit underneath so he can kind of get the shots without getting the helicopter he's in mm-hmm. in the shot. So the helicopter has an updraft, flies a little too close to the helicopter above it, the camera helicopter, and not only damages the, the helicopter, both helicopters, but the rotor goes right through Johnny Jordan's foot. <laughs> and okay. uh, according to people on the production, there was a shot where he looks down in the camera and sees his foot dangling from his leg. Mm-hmm. So the one helicopter, that helicopter had moved up accidentally, crashes into a mountain, everything's fine. Near death number five. <laughs> and the other helicopter, the camera helicopter, is being piloted by the ex-Kamikaze pilot. <laughs> 
<laughs> so basically, the kamikaze pilot, ex kamikaze pilot, lands on on another stretch of land as a hero, uh, and there. And I can't believe this is true. There happened to be a convention of surgeons <laughs> in the nearby town. So they get Johnny Jordan. That's something right out of a movie. And drive him to this convention where they reattach his foot to his leg. <laughs> now, and that's, I will say that's near death number six. Okay. Okay. So Johnny Jordan has flown back to England and they try to, you know, regain the nerves in his foot so he can use it again. But he decides to just have it amputated. And Broccoli and Saltzman, to their credit, also pay basically for his entire hotel stay, which is nice of them. Uh, Jordan would actually come back to do the next Bond movie, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Um, and just to kind of finish off his story, this is not a Bond story, but just bears mentioning, uh, he would kind of get more and more daring and more and more insane as his aerial career went on. And he did a lot more and more to do more and more great aerial work. Mm-hmm. On the movie Catch-22, allegedly he refused to wear a harness, uh, inside a helicopter because it gave him more freedom. And uh, due to some turbulence, he fell out of the helicopter and to his death. Because <laughs> there had is, to be some sort of death yeah. involved in yeah. this conversation. <laughs> Which I, I, I kind of think would be deaths. like one of the worst way to die. Because like, you know you've screwed up. Like you're falling out of this helicopter and it's like 4,000 feet in the air or something like that. Right. And you're just falling. <laughs> and it's like, there's nothing you can do. Right. There's no way you're going to land where you survive. So I, I don't know. That was kind of... <laughs> I want to mention this volcano set mm-hmm. that Ken Adam is building. So when they ask him how much he might need for the set, he says he might probably will need a million dollars for it. <laughs> which One to remind million you, dollars. <laughs> which is the basically the amount of budget that they used on Dr. No alone. Right. <laughs> they built it on it was it's one of the most complicated one time sets. Ever built. In terms of one-time sets, it's like it's, it wasn't built in a building. It was built on the outskirts of, of um, the Pinewood Studio lot mm-hmm. to basically just be used for this movie. Uh, it was 150 feet high and 450 feet wide, had a operating and working monorail system and helipad, as well as a uh, rocket mock-up that would be able to simulate launch mm-hmm. uh, for them. It's like, essentially he built a secret base. He did build a secret base. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like not even like a prop, just like he built yeah. a secret base. And when uh, people, uh, stories were that people were working on other production would use their lunchtime to just watch this set being built right. because it was so spectacular. How much went towards the piranhas? <laughs> what's, your, what's the price of your average piranha? I do not know, <laughs> but it's a good question. And I'm just talking about a normal piranha, not like a super piranha. Super piranha, yeah. yeah. Not, not a piranha with a laser beam on its yeah, head. Yeah. No, it's like we're, um, we're, we're on budget piranhas. <laughs> and a lot of the other productions kind of joke that you would never be able to light this thing. And then, so obviously they also filmed that final action sequence, that massive epic final action sequence. Mm-hmm. And so they actually do hire some actual martial artists and ninjas from Japan to come into the Pinewood set, uh, led by um, a man named Masahaki Hatsumi, mm-hmm. who was, quote, the last practicing ninja master <laughs> in Japan. What's the last ninja? The British team of stuntmen are told that the ninjas have a lot of pride, try not to outdo them. Mm-hmm. But they soon figure out that the ninjas are afraid of heights. So they are unavailable to do the Right, big, because there's a big, big set piece that involves heights in, the, in yeah. this movie. So yeah. the total of the action sequence oh, totals, uh, according to call sheets, 
a hundred stuntmen mm-hmm. to do. One of the stuntmen didn't uh, really know what he was doing and broke both of his ankles on the fall. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to count that as a near death. I th- what is that? Ni- near death number uh, seven at this point. <laughs> okay. Because like, you know, he was falling so fast and broke both his ankles, but he could have done more to himself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a fast fall. Uh, and we're, we'll just get the near death number eight. Uh, there was a lot of trampoline work in this work in right. this movie. Uh, so um, trampoline almost closed on somebody. <laughs> no, one of the, one of the stuntmen uh, had too hard on this trampoline, missed the uh, safety mat, and landed right on his head. Oh, what happened to him? Uh, I think he just went to hospital and luckily only had a concussion. Okay, so luckily uh, the explosions though uh, and the various action sequences did cause uh, Blofeld's cat to get scared, and he, they couldn't find the cat. For three days, uh-huh. uh, at which point they found that he was in the rafters high above uh, the um, at the at the top of the volcano right. structure, uh-huh. uh, and it's it's alleged uh, that you can actually see the cat in one of the scenes with uh, Blofeld closing his shutters. That you can see the cat hiding <laughs> up in the corner. That does sound like a movie myth. That's like not true. And then just kind of to wrap this up, we're gonna get to our final near death. Oh my god. The near death. Why are so many lives at risk? I don't understand. The near death <laughs> of Sean Connery's interest in the Bond franchise. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you 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 yes. are part of you are part of nerd culture. Uh, yeah, I like to I like to consider you know that the, whether I like to be or the not. The Japanese yeah. fandom, yeah, has has a bit of a reputation of being a little bit obsessive at times. Right. Like and any fandom, really. It really. I don't know why we got to call out the no, Japanese. But they, but they have like kind of a, a very, you know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. This yeah. is a little bit more. I don't know. Like maybe it's on my side of the so- street. Sounds like you're a little racist, Nick. No, no, <laughs> I'm not a little racist. <laughs> <laughs> I promise, I'm not a little racist. But anyway, okay. So anyway, obsessive fandoms. Yes, yeah. I, understand, I understand that so very well. Japan, when Bond arrives, uh-huh. they first of all they refuse to call him Sean Connery. <coughs> They will only call him James Bond. Uh, they will not... Basically, like, anytime Connery goes out the streets, they're swarming this guy. Uh-huh. He's having lunch. At one point, there was an incident where he was in the restroom, and a bunch of Japanese media took pictures of him on the toilet, uh, and which was not really uh, good for Connery. And so they hired a bunch of security to stay around Connery, but then at some point, even the security started taking pictures of him. <laughs> And this was just something that Connery was dealing with. Uh, it was kind of elevated in Japan, but it was really following Connery all the way around. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to even to kind of his stuff on Thunderball. And he just started to get really just disinterested and disillusioned. At one point, there was a big story in Japan that uh, Connery had said in an interview that he didn't think that Japanese women were sexy. Um <laughs> Now, it turned out that this was just a mistranslation uh, that basically was from Connery not really caring about the interview, and there was there was a little bit of a mixed signal between right. what the question was and the answer and all that sort of stuff. And then in another interview... Granted, this is the guy who, you know, backs up his statement that it's fine to hit a woman when she wants to have the last word in an argument. There's, an, there's another... <laughs> Nick's look right now. He did say that. No, I know. <laughs> So yeah, I'm t- I mean, I don't. I'm not defending this. I don't. Some, I just. There's nothing to say. Like sometimes it's bad. she wants to have the last shot of sake, and I don't want to have another shot of sake, so I sake her. <laughs> and then, uh, so just to kind of finish up the interview thing, there was another interview that uh, Connery 
showed up to in a a t-shirt and, and baggy pants and kind of even like sandals mm-hmm. and the interviewer was incensed he was like is this how james bond dresses <laughs> and connery <laughs> replies no this is how sean connery dresses and sean connery unlike bond wants to be comfortable <laughs> and it was just too much for connery so in the middle of production he announces that he will be leaving uh, the James Bond role. Right. Uh, and Brock, so he had one more film on his contract, and Broccoli and Salt tried desperately to convince him to do that last one, but he was not budging. So they agreed to just let him drop the last film on his contract uh, and this make this the final James Bond All right. uh, for Connery. Spoiler alert, this is not the final James <laughs> Bond for <It's> Connery, <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that at a later date. Just one fact. Uh, this is like the last thing. It's just a fact. It doesn't really have to do with anything, but I thought it was funny. Although, um, our, you know, um, I was going to mention this earlier. I just thought this was kind of a funny little thing. Uh, where's my note on this? There it is. So Akiko, our mm-hmm. friend uh, who knows English, mm-hmm. she was able to learn English really well, uh, but she didn't know how to drive. And this is the only Bond movie where Connery never drives a car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Which is, I don't know, was, I thought it was an interesting fact. Yeah. Uh, he drives a helicopter. He drives a helicopter, but he never drives. Which you a could car. call the the plane, the no, car. So, so when she's driving the uh, Toyota <laughs> the 2000 GT, which they had to cut the roof off because uh, Connery was too big for the car, um, in order to show that she was driving like physically, or he's fi- like, I'm above this. No, no, she's <laughs> physically he was too big for the car. Uh, to to ha- to make it apparent that she was driving, the ca- uh, stuntman attached. Uh, a cable to her car and basically pulled it off screen mm-hmm. and for some close-up shots uh, they had one of the stuntmen wear a wig <laughs> and pretend to be this woman which I wouldn't guess why wouldn't you just get another woman to drive the car yeah I mean you know the women in these movies are already interchangeable so <laughs> why, not, why not just get another one they could drive All right, so <laughs> she doesn't need to speak at all <laughs> so I hope I didn't disappoint with the uh, insanity yeah, of, with of the that um, amount of near deaths. With the amount of near deaths, I think we we if we don't if we don't if we count the actual near deaths, it's so I think I said eight. What eight? Yeah, say eight nine. Eight possibly. Let's just round it up. Just say ten. Just ten. Sure, the cat almost died. Yeah, no, the cat probably did almost die because yeah. he was scared from the explosion. There's probably some ninjas who were just you know just didn't want to talk about it. Like you know. They had a concussion, I'm sure there's but some didn't want to mention it. With the amount of near deaths in this movie, there's some hidden story somewhere. Mm-hmm. That, right. that, uh, so that is pretty much all the notes that I have all right, well, of, on this uh, insanity of a production. So if you have any questions... I do not. Then let's get to lot, talking about no, You no Only questions. Live Twice. A lot of comments. I only have a lot of comments. James Bond. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. And we're back to talk about you only, you only live twice. Twice, 1960. Before we get started. Okay. I was, I was thinking during the break. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How... I don't know. I was just thinking I didn't really sell this during our production, but like they they were almost on a plane that crashed and everybody died. Right. And like everybody that was in, like it was like legit like if that everybody who ran Eon, everybody who was in charge of these movies would have been dead and right. there would be no Bonzilla podcast. It's yeah. just it's just insane to me that just like that was that close of a call. There's the series- a, there's an alternate universe in which we just 
there's one less podcast I'm doing. <laughs> there's an alternate universe where died. just like people are like, oh man, what what would have happened? You know, they had like James were, Bond would have been like, you know what? If that happened, James Bond would have been Jack Reacher. Where every now and then they're like, oh, remember that old spy character, James and, Bond? And they would be new attempts every once in a yeah, while. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of what it would be. But it would just be like, oh, man. Is that- it Jack Reacher? No, Jack Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jack Reacher probably. But it's like Jack Ryan is like the spy kind of character that nobody really cares about. But there's so many attempts at him for yeah. some reason. But you can't name a single discernible characteristic about Jack Ryan. Well, he's white. Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go, James Bond. <laughs> uh, I, Nick, I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna hop right into this movie. Go ahead. I don't even we'll... know if I want to talk about the movie proper. I just want to, I just want to dive in and just discuss the movie itself. Okay. Because this, this movie, okay, Thunderball is still my least favorite we've seen. I would agree. This movie though is the Bizarro Thunderball. Because if you recall my review of Thunderball, Thunderball was a movie in which it's really long. Like, James, you don't really understand what's going on, and nothing is happening. Yeah. This movie is kind of like all that stuff, except a lot of stuff is happening, and it, there's at least forward momentum. Yeah. Like, there's always agree. something going on. There's like, always something happening on screen. Yeah, yeah, and I kind of have, a like, a, a slight understanding of what the quote-unquote plot is, but I, I, I still, like, all right, so, like... When I'm watching this movie, it was I had no sense of where I was in the movie, like what actor we in. I would I will <laughs> like, say that like what was very interesting for this one is that this is the first of a couple Bond movies that will approach that like I don't really have that much familiarity with. Uh-huh. Because like with the first, with Doctor No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, I, those are some of my, you know, I would say like comfort food bonds. Like I will I could watch those anytime. I can just pop it on, love it. I've seen them a million times. And with Thunderball, I had seen it recently enough to this podcast to know a lot of its pitfalls, especially cuz with that screening I was going to it with high expectations and then it came out lower. With for this movie, I really did not know right. what to expect other than like things I knew from the behind the scenes production. So it was a very interesting and different kind of experience to see like a Bond movie almost through new eyes. Right. Yeah, so. it's it was interesting because what keeps it slightly above something like Thunderball was is that on one hand I would say that there's a lot of like I said, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of forward momentum. There's a lot of cool things going on screen, even if it's ludicrous. So like you know, half we get halfway through the movie and you find out that James Bond's uh, uh, what, what's what's the guy's name? Tiger Makako. What? what, what uh, Tiger Tanaka. <laughs> Tiger Tanaka. He like ru- he like runs a ninja island. Yeah. At one point. So now we we've had Spectre Island. We haven't had Monster Island yet, but, but we are going to have it's coming. And now we have Ninja Island. Well, we also had Infant Island. Yeah, and we had Infant Island, and the island that King Kong was on. There's yeah, a lot of islands yeah. in all these and, movies. And the and the Ninja Army that's on this Ninja Island is pretty good because James Bond didn't notice these like 30 people standing a couple feet away from him because he's just like well what are we going to do it's like with the help of my ninjas and then he, and then james bond turns around and it cuts to like 30 guys just like oh just running at hey, him they, yeah like you said they were quality quality yeah, no ninjas. they're good ninjas so so there's always stuff like that i would say the set uh of the volcano base 
and like the third act is impressive. Like there's always it's, something going gonna, no, on. I was gonna say that like the jump to the third act since you just mentioned it. it's like you I do at least for that part in terms of the positives of this. I get swept up in just the sheer massiveness of right. that sequence uh-huh. and just the amount of people, the amount of action, the amount of explosions. You just kind of get caught up in that giant, it's a giant sequence and it plays really well. No, and I'm not a big proponent of, you know, physical, uh, you know, practical over digital. Like yeah. I'm not a stickler for that. Yeah. But this is one of those cases where the, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. It's just the massive physical set looks like a, a physical yeah, set. I would agree. But that and that stuff is great. But then at the same time, I I do feel like this is when we start getting into James Bond as a trope, as a very tropey movie. Mm-hmm. Like because there's a lot of like like all right, getting back in the same old shit. <laughs> You know, and, no, no, and, I know what you mean. But it's and, funny. And, it definitely, it's definitely interesting to talk about this because because it's like we're saying there's there's five different. So we're into the fifth movie. We're, now. This is the fifth movie, yeah. and while there is a lot of that cool stuff that keeps it above Thunderball, so it's not as boring, but it's still kind of like, you know, we so we watched this movie yesterday, and then I got up this morning in preparation for the podcast, and I had to be like, all right, so so what happened? <laughs> like it's like because it, it is kind of like all right, this is like standard James Bond movie. It's just weird because we've seen somewhat of a variety of them with the past four, and we mm-hmm. knew this was going to happen. I mean, this is one of the reasons we're doing the podcast Yeah, it, is that, you know, the James Bond and the Godzilla franchise are just kind of known for just doing the same exact shit over and over again. So it's just fine that we finally reach that point with James Bond mm-hmm. where it's like, all right, we're, it's, we're, it's we're in a, the formula. It's, it's truly an established series now. Right. It's it's basically, when you when you look at it, like when we look at this now, this is the fourth film with Spectre, uh-huh. and you know it really does feel like. What's really funny is that how much of an outlier, just looking back, Goldfinger is, and that there is no Spectre stuff, right? And again, we'll be we'll be seeing Spectre for a little bit more, so it's just how much of that plays. You know, we're finally get like playing out, paying off these this n- number one teasing, which is Blofeld, mm-hmm. and you you've had like we said four films with the Bond character. You know now that he likes Shaken Not Stirred. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, he likes his Walper PPK. You know that he uh, gets with women all the time, right? And you especially know that in yeah. this movie. Uh, you, but again, you know, that, you know a lot. You know a lot about the character but already. But but that, <laughs> no. But it, it is interesting. Just what you're saying is that you are kind of settling in to. We're the, full uh, formula now. We're full formula now. Yeah, and then it's like, but then that that's the thing. So you just mentioned it. Like, I don't. I had this question while thinking about this. When is the next time? James Bond is when these movies get into any type of character, you know, and and especially like the Craig Bond movies get a little bit into you know a little right. bit modernizes more, a little bit and it gets a sense. little bit more intimate as much as you can get with James Bond. But it's like I'm watching this. It's like I don't know. Like we're in a big action set piece with the helicopters, and I'm like I don't know anything more about James Bond right. <laughs> than I do. In fact, like I don't even know if I understand his character. Like it seems like they half-ass his Mary Sueness. Like, <laughs> like every now and then he'll be like, and it's like, oh, do you like uh, this? It's like, do you like this uh, 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 bur- bourbon, James? And he's like, oh, only made from the finest, only drenched in the finest oak from this part of the world. And, and <laughs> so it's like he'll have like moments like where he knows everything about like a certain alcohol, which maybe he's just an alcoholic. Well, I mean, but that, but that's like, a, yeah, that's been a thing about the character. <laughs> oh, maybe. Like, because in Goldfinger, you know, in Goldfinger, that's his whole thing is like, 
you have to have the champagne at the correct temperature or right. else like you know you're going to be the beatles with melt mirror muffs but or whatever I, and it's like he's that, getting to the point where there's how is there anything likable about this guy cuz all he knows he just this is a, he, he I mean, just looks like a buffoon yeah. who just can fight and just happens his way out of scenarios well, no, it just knows a lot the about thing is, alcohol it's like like I, we talked about this in the goldfinger episode is that like i like and and in the from much with the two episode um i like the idea that bond is this guy who gets he he kind of is ahead of the game he's trying right, to figure yeah. out what's going on and he can outstep the people that are outstepping him like with with red grant in from much with love in the briefcases and then with goldfinger in goldfinger and they're kind of one-upping of each other mm-hmm. that's when that character works i think the problem that we're getting into is that it's almost it, this is this is the type of movie that when people want to parody the James Bond franchise, this is kind of the things that they go for. Yes, and and because because well, I mean, there's a lot like of like Blo- Blofeld in this movie is Doctor Evil. Yeah, I mean, well, like, those like, are those those are our two characters. The beginning of this movie reminded me of all the Austin Powers. Like, okay, so this is what Austin Powers is really making fun of. Right, I mean, like with the, the with the giant space, the space bullet. Or the, I, I called it like. Robot space jaws because yeah. it was just eating everybody. Yeah, I called it like a giant space. The movie opens up with a giant space bullet eating like another satellite, and then you can already, you, I can already see the makers of uh, of Austin Powers are like, all right, we'll do that scene. We'll put balls on the space bullet, and then it'll be a giant metal penis eating things out of the sky. <laughs> and it's like that's that's what it is. But here's the thing about like like you have like characters like Han Solo, mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, Star Lord, who are kind of very similar-ish in terms of like oh like buffoons who are capable but you know you know suave and they luck their way into things yeah. but i know their character like indiana jones is like the ultimate like ultimate example of this, ultimate yeah. example of you know the same thing in the raiders of the lost ark would have happened whether he was there or not and he fails he he messes up a lot of the time in that movie but you kind of get that sense like i don't like really get like what what is james bond's deal you, you know what like this is kind of i was going to say this for like kind of the end of this but <laughs> it's really interesting looking at this knowing for me knowing where the franchise goes cuz almost looking at this on its own i just kind of feel that it is just about time for connery's interpretation to kind of be done right and i cuz you have to remember when this started i started seeing why people liked him a lot Oh, I thought you said why you like Tim, and I was like Tim. You sounded <laughs> like you said why Tim. Why why people like Tim? Yeah, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> no, it's like no, uh, I, no, I, no. Yeah, I get why they like him, but at this point, I'm just like, come on, like let's let's like do stuff. <laughs> well, no, because because I mean, it really just speaks to me how good those first three Bond movies are, at least to me, right? Because I think that Connery's really into all those movies. And I think that the that you're kind of building this. All three of those movies are kind of building the seeds of this character, right? And the problem with both Thunderball, where I still really like Connery's performance in Thunderball. Mm-hmm. I think that Connery, Connery's performance. The more I've thought about it afterwards, it's just kind of one of those saving graces of that. One of the few saving graces of that movie mm-hmm. that he still kind of portrays what is like the the suaveness and like the accent right yeah whereas this one it just at some point feels that like you i feel like connery's disinterest from the behind the scenes perspective yeah sometimes leaks into his performance in this movie and the suaveness yeah is just so just so 
the, the misogyny in this movie. <laughs> yeah, since this has kind of been bubbling under the surface yeah, for everything. Yeah, for me uh, especially. I mean, here's the thing. We haven't been talking a lot about the plot recently because I don't really have any interest in talking about it that the, much. The basic plot. Yeah. The basic plot of this is that um, at the beginning of the movie, a Soviet uh, satellite or rocket is, is, eaten, is, by the space is eaten by the space bullet. And the Ro- Russians blame the Americans and a war is about to break out. Right. And the British intelligence believes that Something is going on in Japan that's going to start a war between these two countries. And mm-hmm. so Bond has his death faked to, to go undercover in Japan to find out who's really sending off the missiles. Right. And spoiler alert, Spectre sending off the missiles to start a big nuclear war right. so that Spectre can kind of remain the But that's the other the thing. But I, I, and I hate to say, like, because you know how much I hate when people say this about superhero movies, about how, you know, they're all, like, the same. Yeah. But, like, this is kind of, like, one of those movies where it, it just, it feels like what the plot, what the stakes are are so like obligatory like especially like with the other movies i i had the sense of like all right this is the political especially the first two were a lot about like political well the, more so the second one was more about political intrigue and the first one was kind of like a mystery thing and then like you have like i mean i had the same problem with the end of doctor no where it's right. like oh it's a big missile and you know there's not a lot of weight so that's and, the and only then, reason and then, and then goldfinger uh, of all the films probably has the most specific like villain right exactly and, and hero interaction where like we've said in that episode the, the 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 plan was so unique that it kind of saved everything like you know it kind of made it stand right. out a little I, bit and more. i think the problem with like the bad guy plot with which is going on like it, it could like i they ultimately didn't stick the landing for me but i'll, I'll that goes more into blowfeld stuff i want to get into like the big thing that i'm talking yeah because i because i have some thoughts on this too the misogyny in this movie is off the charts. Well, here's here's I the thing about this. Like, like I was thinking about this after we watched the movie as I was going to bed last night. <laughs> the big at this point, the Bond woman formula is just pornography. <laughs> it's that's what it is. Well, because no, I turned to you at one point and because these women yeah. have no character. I turned to you at one point in this movie and I'm like, why does he have to have sex? With all of these women, like, 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 really, why does he have to? No, it's just like, the thing is, like, to me, at like the at this end point, of the day, he doesn't even look like he's into it anymore. No. Aki, uh, the the first woman, and he he has like he picks she, she picks him up. Their interaction is that she picks him up uh, and sends him to this Henderson guy who is like British Woody Harrelson looking dude, right? And then like he leads her into a trap by Tiger Tanaka, and then the next time they see each other, oh, let's have sex. Let's 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 just do it. I'm right. Gonna, and then uh, Helda Brandt, she's part of this whole Spectre operation. She's torturing him, and then she just starts kissing. She him. She doesn't even start torturing him. She's just like, this thing will take off your skin. Now give me your penis. Like it's like essentially that. Yeah, was the and scene. then and then he like takes the his torture device and cuts off her dress with it. And I'm like, what's going on? And then the next scene is her throwing him out of a plane. (laughs) It's like, that's the next scene. But here's the thing. And and that was going back into like what you said about production, because at this point, like the, the two Asian female characters are essentially interchangeable. Yeah. Like, like, and I don't mean that from like the, Oh, they're both Asian. I don't mean it that way. (laughs) It's like, I mean like in the sense of like, there was no sense in killing off one just to replace her with another oh, no. one. No, there's not. Like, no, you could have easily... Because the whole thing is that Bond is supposed... Bond is supposed to pretend to be a Japanese man. Right. 
Which I have thoughts about that too. Yeah, but the, we'll, I guess we'll get to that in a second because we're going to just talk about the women in this movie that are supposed to be in this movie. Um, so Bond's supposed to be pretend to be a Japanese man, and he's going to have a fake Japanese wife. Right, right. And so he's going to marry Aki. Right. Uh, but then she is poisoned and killed or whatever. Right. Which I will say is like that's another one of those things that's like oh that is interesting and inventive. Like the like the ninja or the, the assassin has like the long piece of string that drips poison mm-hmm. down it. I, I thought that was like an interesting yeah. like oh that's actually inventive. That's cool. Yeah, but um, but yeah, you know, but he but, has but, to but, like, marry the marry girl. So Aki dies, and so there's like okay, well we'll get this other which girl. they never really justify why he had to get fake married to no, somebody. No, but it's here's not. but here's another thing. See. And you're you're talking about like you know film storytelling and execution version. I'm talking about just blatant on the page misogyny. So at one point he has to get married to another woman, and he's like, "Well, what about this this woman here? And like the one that the like the Asian woman who's been there the whole time?" And then he's like, "Well, I don't think that's going to be possible. It's like we already have people set up for this." And then like literally it starts an, a running gag of I hope she doesn't have a pig face, in which like. Tiger like laughs at that like it's like oh yeah she's gonna have a pig face and then they bring it up again and then they present all I guess the brides or the people who are getting married and it's it's like that gag where each woman comes up and like and it's like not like a pretty woman it's not like it's it's not like a like a beautiful woman who comes up and until like the end one where it's like oh whoo I I get the hot one but it's like the look on this is the most acting Sean Connery does in the entire movie, and he's too good at it. Where it cuts to his face when he looks at one of these women, and he's just so repulsed. He's just he's like a kid who doesn't want to but has to eat his vegetables. Mm-hmm. Like he's that disgusted by the women he's seeing until the last one. And guess what? These women are just a little older than him. <laughs> like that's all. They're not like these just young. They're they're not even like ugly. They're just these older women. What else do I have here? Um, oh, he. So when he meets with Tiger, uh, he. I don't even remember what the first part of this line was, but he says the number two rule in Japan is that men come first and women come second. To which Bond responds, "I must retire here." <laughs> and I'm like. Wait, what? It really not is not to mention cre- the fact that at the end of the movie, for absolutely no reason, uh, Kissy Suzuki, again, whose name is never mentioned in the movie. I don't know if that was part of the cut or if it was just never written, but her name's never mentioned, but the final bride, Kissy Suzuki. Again, the only female character that was originally in the book never has her name mentioned yeah, in the movie. Just, but like, she's just running around in a bikini. Yeah. For yeah, no reason. Really for, for no, no reason. reason. <laughs> so... I was going to talk about the yellow face real quick or the quote unquote yellow face, I guess. Yeah. Where they kind of like, I guess it was, I mean, it's just weird because it's like, weird. It's not as gross as I thought it was going to be because the Japanese people do it to him. And, and, and the part of it is, it's, <laughs> I don't know if that it's not it okay. from a meta. It's like, it's hard to kind of see it just in the sense of like, it's not as it's not like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Where right, it's like yeah. it's a white man playing an Asian character. It's more like oh, this guy's got to go in disguise and he's right. got to put on yellow face. And, and, it's and like, because we, know was, he, we like we all know he's not Japanese, right? And it's because like uh, the tiger and all the other people on Ninja Island are like, well, we got to get you undercover, and then it's like, yeah, so we're gonna it, we're gonna do this to you. So it's like uh, it doesn't feel as invasive. 
but it's still weird. No, yeah, it's it's no good. <laughs> like it's no. Um, let's see. Do you want to? The, the last thing I want to talk about, and the last thing is Blofeld. Yeah, let's talk about Blofeld because that's the thing. Like for a movie that this is the first reveal of Blofeld, he feels so. What's a good word? Ancillary. Like he feels like so. Mm-hmm. Like he I'm, feels like a footnote in the underwhelming. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it's like even though. So the whole shtick is like you haven't seen Blofeld's face. Like he's always just stroking the cat. And then so they reveal Blofeld and because they always film it where his face is obscured. In this scene, there's a guy standing in front of him and he's like, well, pleased to meet you, Mr. Bond. And then he looks from behind the guard that's standing in front of him. And Will was about to do this physically before remembering nobody can see yeah, him exactly. right now. But he looks from behind the guard and he like reveals himself to be Blofeld before moving the guard away. And it's just, for me, the most comical... Like, this was like... That was something out of, like, Austin Powers. Yeah. Because you would think, like, in a movie, like, in all these other movies where, you know, they would reveal the character and maybe there'd be a cut or a camera pan or, like, somebody's moving out of the way and you reveal him, but it's just like, hello. <laughs> like, him popping out. And this also, this was two things that were interesting about this Blofeld character because Donald Pleasance's iteration of Blofeld was kind of, to me, whatever. Like, he doesn't really... Because ha- we're, we're so used to now the trope of the movie is that if you don't see the villain for a while, like look at Skyfall, for example, like what's his, Javier Bardem isn't in half of that movie. Yeah. And then when he shows up, it's like a big scene, mm-hmm. like a big dialogue scene. Like this is who the character is. This is, this is what it is. Um, because Blofeld, that's one of the things I was saying. Like, it's like, I have no sense of where we are in this movie because we haven't seen him yet. So it's just interesting in that way. And now it's also interesting that we have um, Christoph Waltz play Blofeld and like see, all right, well, let me see the original Blofeld. I don't know if we're going to get more into him as the movies go on. But again, kind of like Bond, I have no discernible characteristics of him other than he's weird evil guy well here's the thing about blofeld i was gonna save this actually for like a later blofeld appearance but i think it's almost like just something i'm gonna be looking forward to as we get to a couple we're gonna have a couple more blofeld appearances this is going way far to like the end of the podcast but specter didn't do as well as people thought it would. right right and part of that to me when looking back is like is specter and is blofeld as big and as memorable of a of a thing as we think it is, because the thing is, is like we've had Spectre for these films, and they're they are a big deal, but also they've been kind of like. Wait, do you mean Spectre as the organization? Just I guess Spectre more so. I mean Blofeld more folks no than Spectre, right? Because like Blofeld is this like, I I almost feel like sometimes we we like the. In the well, image and idea of yeah. Blofeld more more than the actual execution. But, but I'm gonna be interested the, to but, see like but Spectre, if the, again. Yeah. This is going forward, but Spectre may be an unfair uh, example because that movie also fucked around, like tiptoed around it, and right, like yeah, tried to do thing. like the whole reveal that he's Blofeld, yeah. like as opposed to just going in and it's like he's even though we all kind of knew. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's like you we, watched, we, yeah we knew that her uh, Christoph Waltz was playing John Harrison. Yeah, <laughs> when he was actually playing, you know. Ernst Stavo Khan Blofeld. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah but no, it's but like I'll, I get no sense of who he is other than weird guy. Yeah. And then his plan, he's like, I'm about to start a war. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, okay. And then he's like, he's like, like hunching around everywhere, just like, he's like, I will kill you now. Like, it's like, he, he he's kind of like a very, he like, 
he looked I like mean, the Adam West penguin. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like, that, no, Batman it's just, it does penguin. feel to an extent like it's like that's why Dr. Evil was so easy to make a, as a character. Right, yeah. Because it's just, it seems like it's an instant thing to get from from this performance as Blofeld. Right. Now, like the other performances of as of, of Blofeld are not as kind of evil, Not I don't want to say evil villain, but like kind of like as like costumed as this one, I would say, like with the makeup and, and the, the eye and everything. Right. So I'll be interested to see like what we end up saying is the best of the original Blofelds. Right. I'll be interested I mean, to see. Kind of, but but like, I, but yeah, no, it's just for his first movie and kind of for that like kind of appearance that you see as so iconic. Right. It, it just doesn't play. And it just feels so out of place at some points in this movie. Let, let's wrap this up. All right. You want to get to the aftermath? <laughs> yeah. Because we got to start wrapping up. Okay. Alrighty, so the uh, movie was heavily promoted, uh, most notably because of the fact that the public knew that Connery was leaving, so they were trying to get one last Connery is James Bond moment, like sh- like kind of that idea of like this is this is the James Bond you know, and he's going away. So you know, they the producers promised that oh, that people knew that James Bond was leaving, so he's gonna he was gonna die and get married, uh, and he does get die and get married in this movie. Um, oh, I was going to mention real quick before we get to the aftermath. Uh, one of the minor little things about the Bond character. This is the first time it is noted that he is a command. He was a commander in the Royal Navy, yeah. uh, which is a not doesn't really play in this movie, but does become a big part of his character, uh, just in, from the books and from later movies. Uh, and they also it had a special. I mean, it makes sense all the women he sleeps with. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the in America, they had a TV special called Welcome to Japan, Mr. Bond, which had exclusive footage of Q giving the viewer some gadgets uh, and uh, Lois Maxwell trying to find out uh, who Bond is marrying. So uh, it was, it's on the bonus features of DVD. It's actually really interesting to watch. Uh, the movie released worldwide had a simultaneous release on June 13th, 1967. Uh, and did pretty well, um, not as well as Thunderbolt and Goldfinger did. It was a little bit of a step down. Uh, not too badly, though. Uh, it made $111 million worldwide in comparison to Thunderbolt's $140 million something. Uh, and it was 43 of that in the United States. So these films are still doing very, very well uh, in the United States. Uh, we have some reviews from the time period. Okay, give them to me. All right, let's 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 take a look at these. Roger Ebert, in one of his uh, earlier uh, kind of film reviews, uh, said, said that um, the film uh, was falling into the Bond formula uh, as a negative sort of way uh, and said that, like Thunderball, it was just kind of everything was happening, but nothing was really happening mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> I lost my notes. Hold on. I put these. I put the irresponsible. Film, I put the film notes on my phone because it's a little easier to get direct quotes than writing them. As down. you are demonstrating right yes. now, as you're. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, film critic James Bernard Bernardelli mm-hmm. uh, said that he enjoyed the first half of the film, but during the second half, as the plot escalates beyond the bounds of preposterousness, that the film starts to fragment. And the uh, it's probably when the ninjas are introduced. And they said that the um, he said that rockets that swallow up spacecraft are a bit too extravagant. Okay. And then Danny Perry uh, wrote that she only two twice should have been twenty minutes longer. And he said it was it's not a bad Bond film, but it doesn't compare to its predecessor. The formula has become a little too stale. So uh, just in terms of its overall at the time, 
it was still well reviewed, but a lot of people were kind of falling into what we've kind of said that this the Bond formula now it's kind of just been too much mm-hmm. at this point. Um, are, are are you done? Can I give a final statement? Go ahead. Uh, I will say my final review of you only you only live twice. Well, I will only watch once. Excellent. I have two questions for you, friend. Yeah. All right. What role does Harrison Ford play? Uh, I was thinking about this. Uh, he is. Um, I mean, I guess he would just be part of that. He was. He was. He's. What would he be? Would he be in that room that's about to launch the missile? He could be that. I, I, I see him as one of the officers that he's on, like the ship when they're like. Oh, he's the captain of the sub. Yeah, he's captain. He's the captain of the sub. Oh yeah. By the way, MI6 is on a sub in this movie for some reason. Yeah. So that that would be my. He's the captain of the sub. Also mentioned, even though Sean Connery doesn't have his traditional hat, he does throw his uh, his naval hat. He does. Uh, And my also him and Money Penny. I'm getting sick of your shit. (laughs) Like it's not. I thought this was gonna be way more cute. It's not cute anymore. Just. I think I think this is this is one of the last. I, now, this is one of the weaker ones for me. I, I still think there are other money penny conversations that kind of live up to that that for much with love height. Right. I, I still think there are ones where their dynamic right. is still good. Right. My second question for you: What role does Godzilla play uh, in this movie? Oh wow! Um, oh, that's the post credit scene when yeah. they blow up the uh, the what's it called the uh, volcano. Volcano. They awaken Godzilla Excellent. in the volcano. I was gonna say he plays Henderson, the informant that like he's just like like you said. <laughs> It's just like he opens the door and it's just Godzilla in a suit, like giving him this information about Blofeld. This but did really make me want a Godzilla, James Bond crossover yeah. of some kind. No, but uh, yeah, no, I like your idea that the post credit scene is that uh, Spectre accidentally awakens Godzilla. I like it. I love it. Let's, let's write it. All right. So next, Adam Wingard, whatever you're doing, drop it. Drop it. Make drop this it and one. Do that. <laughs> if we're not going to get our MI6 Mission Impossible and uh, yeah. Bond crossover, because the next Mission Impossible movie is MI6. Yeah. Uh, then Bond and Godzilla, I will take. There you go. All right, so um, yeah, so Connery is done for now with uh-huh. the Bond franchise. So we are going uh, into what? Next time we're going to be going into On Her Majesty's Secret Service as the Bond producers search for a new Bond and find one in a man named George Lazenby. So mm. we're going to get our first new Bond on the next episode, and it's going to be a very... How much do you know about On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Uh, nothing except that the logo I chose with it for the thumbnail... Mm-hmm. has a lot of women in it. Okay. That's all I know. All right. So there's going to be a lot to discuss <laughs> in that one. But next time on the podcast, where will we next be Next time headed? we are going back. We are staying in Japan, actually. Yeah. And uh, we are going into the next... Uh, We've made that joke like three <laughs> episodes in a row, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, but the, well, the last one, but we're staying... Okay, maybe. Uh, we are going to be uh, um, delving into one of, another one of Godzilla's famous... Uh, Rivals, enemies within the in the kaiju canon in a Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's it for this episode. I think that's it. Where can like, we find? We're going to find us in these places. Yeah. Listen carefully. Okay. All right. You're going to find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash bonzilla007. Yeah. You're going to find us on Facebook, uh-huh. facebook.com slash bonzilla007. Uh-huh. You can email us now. Yeah. You can email us at the beginning, but you can email us right now at bonzillapod at gmail.com. You can also like and subscribe iTunes and soundcloud.com slash bonzilla007. We appreciate you listening to us. Thank you for joining us today. Yes. and uh, This was a fun discussion. It was. 
no near deaths between us no. on this podcast. Yeah, very, very uh, much alive. Very much alive. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we'll see you next time here on the Bonzilla Podcast. Yes, I'm Will. And I'm Nick. There were a lot of near deaths in this movie. Yeah, there were. <laughs>